Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. It's uh, again an amazing privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word. It's a little bit uh, unorthodox, the setting, but... Uh, still a wonderful privilege to proclaim God's word and trusting that the Lord will use uh, this medium. And we pray before every service that the Lord would save people and grow his church and most importantly glorify his name uh, through the preaching of his word. So we continue our series in 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you can turn there in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we're going to Try to do the whole chapter. Um, so I'm going to read through, through the chapter and then we, we can look at it. So from, from verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is what Paul says. Uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, 
Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that has been ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that has been administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder if you know any truly generous people. Uh, I'm sure if you do, you will be well aware of it because they do stand out. Uh, when you meet someone who is generous, who is thoughtful, who is kind, who doesn't uh, sacrifice begrudgingly, it is a wonderful thing to meet someone like that. To be in the presence of someone like that. Uh, I praise God that I've had the privilege throughout my life of having people like that in my life, from family members to members in various churches and especially here at, at Heritage. Uh, we want to be a generous church and that's what Paul wants for the Corinthian church. A generous church is a wonderful, glorious, powerful thing. And even though there is uh, there are many in the church who are generous, and uh, it's wonderful receiving the testimonies, even at this time of difficulty and trial, of the generosity of people in the church and their sacrifices. Uh, we should never rest on our laurels. Uh, just because we are generous doesn't mean we can't grow in generosity, continue to excel in it. Uh, and besides that, it doesn't mean that everyone in the church is as generous as they should be. And so our desire is that through this message, through the preaching of God's word, we as a church would grow as a generous community, a kind community, a caring community, a giving community. I don't think it's a coincidence that right after uh, the previous section that we looked at last week on repentance, where Paul commends the Corinthian church for their repentance, uh, for how they've responded to his severe letter, that he now turns to the issue of giving, the issue of using their money to help others. Uh, there is probably no surer evidence of God working in a person than that they become generous, that they give sacrificially. It is a tangible evidence that God is working in someone's life. And maybe you're not familiar with heritage. Maybe you, you're just, you, know, you just came across this link on Facebook or YouTube and you 
you, you just started listening and you think, oh no, not another sermon about money. Uh, every time I go to church or hear a sermon, it's about money. Um, I, I wonder how many of us can, can acknowledge that we've been in churches like that. That every service, there is a little sermon or a little sermonette about giving. That you need to give. If you want to be blessed, you need to give. And uh, there's even a term now for churches like that. They preach what is called the prosperity gospel. And so many people have turned away from the church because they think the church is just after money. And there are many who do that in the name of Christ, but that is not Christianity. And I want you to know that I don't know when the last time giving was preached on from this pulpit. I don't know, it's probably several years. Uh, because we practice what is called Lectio Continuum. Uh, we don't just preach topically. We don't just preach, you know, well, let's preach on giving because we just want to make more money or something like that. Uh, this is the next section in... 2 Corinthians. So it's a wonderful safeguard uh, as we go through Scripture verse by verse, section by section. We can't just preach our hobby horses. We can't just preach what we like. We have to preach what the text says. So please don't switch off. Don't run away. Uh, Hopefully you'll see that this is a different sermon on giving. And uh, it's not that we always talk about giving at all. Well, some background to this passage that I read. Uh, Paul is wanting the Corinthians to raise funds that he can take to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was undergoing severe difficulties. Uh, There was what is known as the Great Famine. This famine was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when he spoke in the Olivet Discourse about the destruction of Jerusalem and he said there's going to be famines. Uh, And so there's this great famine that has come upon uh, Jerusalem. Agabus in Acts chapter 11 also prophesies about a great famine that's going to affect the Roman world. And the church in Jerusalem was particularly hard hit. And so I remember in agrarian cultures... Uh, that's how people survive. That's how they, they, they lived. And if there's no, no crops, uh, they are going to die. There's not other business opportunities. And so the church has been affected. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, Look, I want you on the first day of the week. So that's today, the Sunday, the first day of the week, when you come together to put some money aside. And when I come, I will collect that money and take it to Jerusalem. And so we learn a few things just from what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First of all, uh, to be intentional, to plan. He says, I want you to set aside. So if you're going to be generous and you're going to give, it's not just going to happen. You need to be intentional. You need to say, okay, I'm going to put this aside to give to the Lord's work. Um, Paul says he's going to come and collect it and take it to the Jerusalem church. And I want you to know that this is a massive gospel picture right here. Uh, Because remember that the Jerusalem church, where the church was birthed, the New Testament church was birthed, the apostles were Jewish, Jesus Christ himself was Jewish, and Old Testament Jews, and even those at the time of Jesus, looked down on non-Jews. 
They looked down on the Gentiles. They looked down on the Samaritans. They saw them as less than. The Gentiles obviously resented the arrogance of the Jewish nation. And so there was tremendous friction. Paul talks about a, a wall of division in Ephesians. Now, the church in Jerusalem is broken. People are, are dying. The church is taking strain. There's uh, severe distress upon them. Who are the only people who can help them? Well, it's Gentile churches. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for the gospel to, to impact fellowship between Jew and Gentile. It would have been uh, humbling for the Jewish community to receive help from the Gentiles. Uh, but they had to submit to that and rejoice in that. It would have been easy for the Gentiles to say, no, I'm not going to support those guys. Remember how they used to treat us, turn their noses up at us, always think they're better than us? I'm not giving to those guys. I'll give to other Gentiles, but not to them. And yet that's not the response of the Macedonian church. They long to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And a wonderful picture for, for the church at large to help those uh, who are different to us. So that's the background. Uh, Paul has already spoken to the Corinthians about giving. Uh, but with everything that happened, obviously this fell onto the back burner. And we saw in that passage that I read that uh, Paul has to say to them, look, you wanted to do this, now I want you to push through and actually do it. And he uses the Macedonian church as an example. So look at verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Macedonia, remember Corinth is in Greece. It's in sort of the southern part in a province called Achaia. It's in fact the capital of the province of Achaia, Macedonia, up to the north. But the Macedonians were, were seen as, also seen as less than. They were those who lived on the wrong side of the railway line. They were not sophisticated or wealthy like the, like the Corinthians. They were the country bumpkins. They were the hillbillies of Greece. And yet Paul uses them as an example of generosity. They were seen as second-class citizens. The Corinthians saw themselves as sophisticates, as cutting-edge, avant-garde, not like the Macedonians. But Paul says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Not only were the Jewish believers facing severe affliction, the Macedonian believers were facing severe affliction. We know that they were being persecuted. They were also extremely poor. Notice what he says here, extreme poverty. The title for this sermon is Extreme Poverty and Abundance of Joy. Uh, literally, Paul uses an idiom here, down to the depths poverty, rock bottom poverty. And yet, abundance of joy that overflows in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that incredible? Uh, survey after survey has shown 
that proportionally speaking, poor people are more generous with their money than rich people. Now, we are blessed at Heritage uh, to be close to university, and it is a privilege to gain uh, further education, and many of the students and, and many who have already finished their studies go on to prominent places in, in the work environment, getting good jobs, uh, rising up into the middle class and even beyond that. Uh, my prayer for you and by God's grace, impact from this sermon, is that you don't begin to fall into that wrong aspect of that statistic. That you, as you move out of poverty into the middle class, that you don't become less and less generous. You might give more money, but proportionally speaking, you're giving less. The Macedonians gave more In their poverty, they still gave, and they knew abundance of joy. I don't think we have a category for that in Johannesburg. How on earth can you know extreme poverty and abundance of joy? We can't wrap our heads around that. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, uh, he studied the concept of happiness a lot. Uh, He called it eudaimonia, the good life. And he said the good life is living a virtuous life. But he said if you want to have a happy, good, virtuous life, you need two things to be true, foundationally true. Otherwise, you won't get it right. That is, you need to have enough money that you don't have to worry about working. (laughs) And you need to have good health. So Aristotle says, look, if you want to be really happy, make sure you have lots of money and you're not sick. And then you can work on being virtuous. Paul says, no, these Macedonian believers had extreme poverty and severe affliction and yet an abundance of joy. It reminded me of of Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. See, we need to change our our paradigm, don't we? We need to realize that it is possible to be poor and know joy. To find our joy in the Lord. And even in poverty, to think of others. And that's why I said, if if you're familiar with generous people, they're, they're incredible, aren't they? They really are that seasoning. They're that salt and that light. Because they're thinking of others all the time. And they have this this wonderful joy. They're not selfish. You know that the more selfish you are, the less happy you are. The people who are always taking care of number one are the least happy people because there's things you can't control. And so if you're always obsessed with self and my comfort and take care of number one, You're going to be upset all the time because the world doesn't revolve around you and so there's things beyond your control. You don't control the weather. You don't control the traffic. You don't control how everyone else relates to you. And then you meet people who it's not about them. They're thinking of others. And they're free and they know that, that joy. But how were the Macedonians able to to do this? 
Well, verse 1 tells us, by the grace of God. See, how are we going to become people like that, a church like that, that is looking outward, not self-absorbed? I was reading an article this morning about churches that die, uh, not because I was worried about heritage, but uh, forewarned is forearmed. And one of the signs is that you become self-absorbed. You're no longer uh, concerned about the mission of the church to go out and make disciples, to make God's name great. Begin to look inward and obsess about silly things. Um, One church, (laughs) uh, they were fighting over whether they should buy toilet paper in bulk or only as it is needed. You know, and those sort of petty divisions start to destroy a church. But so how are we going to be different? By the grace of God. Remember, the grace of God is not some nebulous thing. The grace of God is a power that you're able to change. Notice what Titus said, Paul says to Titus, verse, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. To do what? To help us in our time of need. Maybe there's tremendous discontent in your life. Maybe you have loads of money, lots of money in your bank account. Maybe you have no money, but you're still discontent. Well, go to the throne of grace. Find grace to help in time of need. The Macedonians did that. It was by the grace of God that they were able to know extreme poverty, severe affliction, and yet an abundance of joy that overflowed with generosity. And so Paul says in verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They were just pushing themselves. How much can we give? Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor or the grace or privilege. Grace is a, is a key theme in chapter, chapters 8 and 9. The word grace is found 10 times. So I want you to see that everything about giving and being generous has to do with grace. It is the grace of God that enables us to be generous. It is grace when you are generous. You're acting like God. Our God is a generous God. The Macedonians were begging Paul for the grace, the privilege to take part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. What a problem to have, eh? Never had someone come up to me and say, Michael, please, I'm begging you. I want to give more money. Uh, I would love to have a problem like that. The Macedonians, they did that to Paul. Begging Paul. We want to be involved. Uh, It seems as though Paul may not even ask the Macedonians to be involved. Elsewhere, he mentions the churches in Achaia, that's Corinth, and the churches in Galatia, that's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Maybe he didn't want to burden the Macedonians because it's a poor area. And so maybe he's thinking, I don't want to burden those, those believers there. 
And they step up and say, hey, we want to give. We want to be involved. What a wonderful testimony. Uh, They wanted to take part. Again, the Greek word there is koinonia. Fellowship. You see, true fellowship is also financial. Remember what James tells us. You can't say to your brother, you know, Lord bless, be warmed, be filled. True fellowship means you you give and you help. It's uh, been said that the knights who were part of the crusades, when they were baptized, would hold their swords out of the water. Uh, basically saying, I don't want my sword to be baptized because I'm going to use it to kill people. Okay? Uh, So this is not a sermon on the Crusades or Knights or anything about uh, just war theory or anything. Simply a point to say, I think that many Christians, if you could see them when they're being baptized spiritually, they're holding their wallets out the water or their purses. Say, not this. I'll serve the Lord, but not this part of me. There's another story of a wealthy Christian, very, very successful businessman, at his baptism, there were several people being baptized. Many of them, everyone else just dressed casually and they came for their baptism. But he came in a three-piece Savile Row suit, dressed as if he was going to a business meeting in London. And he said, I want to be baptized in this as a reminder that my coming to the Lord means that all of me, my wealth, everything that I have belongs to Jesus Christ. That's what the Macedonians were saying. They said, we want, to, we, we want grace. We want the privilege. We want the grace of taking part in this. And so maybe for some of you, you're saying that. You're saying, Lord, please give me grace. And the Lord is saying, start being generous. That's a means of grace to you. You want to know my grace? Start being generous. This is the grace that I'm giving you. I want to experience my, my, my closeness, my love, and start to be generous. Don't hold your wallet and your purse outside. Verse 5, he says, This not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, generosity stems from devotion to Jesus Christ. They didn't just give money. Because sometimes that's easier. Easy, isn't it? You know, there's a lot about, the, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates and the news and their foundation and, how, you know, the figures are just astronomical, the billions that they're giving away. And it's, it's wonderful. I'm not trying to knock that, uh, people being philanthropic. But, you know, is it, is it so great if you have $100 billion and you give away $10 billion? It's... it's People can do that. People can give large sums of money. It doesn't affect their standard of living. It doesn't affect them at all. It it's not really a sacrifice. Paul is saying, no, for the child of God, our generosity must be rooted in devotion to Christ. Notice that's what they did. They gave themselves first to the Lord. You must give yourself first to the, to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. And then they gave themselves to Paul. As we've seen over and over again, 
If you reject the ones that Jesus sends, you're rejecting Jesus himself. If you reject Paul and his teachings, if you are not willing to submit to them, you are rejecting Jesus Christ. If you give yourself to Christ, you will give yourself to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. You can't write them off. You can't remove them from the Scriptures. Paul was sent by Jesus Christ. And if you don't like them, the problem's not with Paul. The problem's with you. God is not going to shift. We need to shift. And so it's devotion to the Lord that is going to help you to be generous and devotion to the teachings of His Word. There's a Swahili proverb that says, charity is a matter of the heart, not of the pocket. Charity is a matter of the heart, not of the pocket. begins in the heart. Where, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, the Lord Jesus said. Devotion to Christ will result in generosity to others. Verse 6, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. When you read 1 Corinthians, it's clear that the Corinthian church had been blessed with many spiritual gifts. Unfortunately, it didn't correspond to their their level of holiness, but they had many wonderful gifts. And Paul acknowledges that. And he's saying that here as well. You know, you excel in faith and speech and knowledge. Now he says, but I want you to excel in generosity. And as I started the sermon off to say, my desire is that heritage would be a church that excels in generosity. That we're known as a generous church. We excel in it. We're not just mediocre in it. We're not just sometimes good, but we excel in generosity. Generosity for one another. Generosity for other churches as well. Then look at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So notice Paul says, this is not a command, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, in more detail next week, but uh, the New Testament idea of giving is not a a percentage. Uh, You won't find that in the New Testament. You won't find you need to give 10%, which is what a tithe means. Uh, You won't find you need to give 20% or 30% or 100% or 90%. You just won't find that. Uh, What the Lord wants is a cheerful giver. What the Lord wants is people to give sacrificially, like like he gave himself. And so it's not a command in the sense of, you are commanded to give 20%. You are commanded to do this, or anything like that. Paul says, I'm not saying it as a command. That doesn't mean, you know, you're free not to give. Uh, Paul would never have understood it like that. I mean, the whole teaching is on, they need to give. But what is the motive? Well, look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. As we've seen throughout this series, over and over again, Paul comes to Jesus Christ. Whatever the doctrine, whatever the topic, even his travel plans, he has to come back to Jesus Christ. He is obsessed with Christ. And what a a pattern for us to model. Love for Christ in every area of our lives. You want to be generous? Grow in love for Christ. Paul says, I want you, Corinthians, to see Christ. I want you to know the grace of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might become rich. Now this is not physical wealth uh, that has been referred to here because it wouldn't fit. I mean, the Macedonians have extreme poverty, down to the depths poverty, yet they love Jesus. So clearly, it is not referring to, you know, Jesus was rich, became poor physically so that you can become rich physically. That's not the, the teaching. Also, what sort of view do you have of heaven if you think Jesus was rich? I mean, what's your view? Was, did Jesus sit there in a mansion, 50 bedrooms, uh, butler, chef, five-star Michelin chef, uh, a Bentley in the garage, jet skis? Is that what you think? You know, Jesus was so rich. It was like he was in an estate. He had all these things. You know, he left that. And he just became really poor on earth. So we can have Bentleys and rich things. Okay, that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. You won't find that in, in Scripture. Now, what is it? What wealth did he have? Over and over again in Scripture, in Philippians, we see this. That, and elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, Jesus had this, this equality with God. And he didn't have to grasp hold on it, onto it. He didn't have to attain it. Fully God. And yet in his humanity, he laid that aside. He laid that glory aside. He didn't tap into his divine nature. He didn't come here as a superman. He humbled himself. One commentator says this, Christ renounced the divine fullness of power in which he dwelt with the Father. In his humanity, he never ceased in his divinity to be fully God. He abandoned the heavenly glory which was his as the Son of God. He chose the poverty of human existence so that through his poverty he could impart the eternal riches of redemption to the poverty of all for whose sake he became poor. You see, the riches that Christ gives us are eternal riches, which we can even experience now, forgiveness of sins, conscience cleared, hope, Victory over sin. Union with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Those are the real riches. That's what we're made for. The church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this, Christ was made poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that he might fill us with glory. He died that we might be saved. He ascended to draw to himself those lying prostrate on the ground through, through sin's stumbling block.
And so in every matter of life, in every fight, in every doctrine, Christ is central. As we saw earlier in, first, in 2 Corinthians, all the promises find their amen in Jesus Christ, find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so Paul points the Corinthians to Christ. He uses the Macedonians as an example. And so it is right for us to also look to other people and other churches as godly examples. The Bible is full of that. But why are they good examples? Because they show us something of Christ. Verse 10, he says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. Looking to Christ and becoming more like Him and being generous and caring for others benefits you. It's a blessing to you. Then he says, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So as I mentioned earlier, the Corinthians had said, we want to start doing this. It was a desire. They started to set aside money on every, every Sunday. A little bit here, a little bit there. But then things fell apart, didn't they? But now he says, verse 11, now that there's repentance, he comes back to this issue of generosity. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Really important principle here. So many of us, we have great, great dreams, don't we? Great ideas. Maybe you even said, you know, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give 10% to the Lord. Or, you know, when I've got a job at this multinational, then I'll start giving to, to the Lord. You make these intentions and you don't follow through on them. You make commitments and you don't keep them. There's always something else, isn't there? Okay, I know that. In life, there's always something. There's always something that pops up. There's a medical emergency. Something breaks. A car breaks. It needs a service. A geezer bursts. This happens. That happens. Unless you're intentional to say, I'm going to do it, and you're committed to it, these things go by the wayside. It's a famous saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Can't just say, no, I intend to give. That was a powerful sermon. Next year, I'm going to start giving. Start giving now. You're a student. You say, I don't have a job yet. But you get some form of income. Start to. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to eat or survive. Start learning to give now. We'll see just now. It's not, there's no percentage. There's nothing like that. I'm not telling you how much you should give or how little or anything like that. But start giving. Don't say, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, I'm going to give. But... Keep your word and start giving. One commentator says, In the Corinthians' case, the smallest gift is greater than the grandest intention that goes unfulfilled. It's convicting, isn't it? How often in our Christian life we have these grand intentions. I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the next thing. We We don't do it. Don't let that be true of your generosity, of your giving. And so Paul says, 
it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, if the desire is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's no point saying, that was moving, I'm going to give, I'm going to give a million rand, and you don't have a million rand. That's what Paul is saying here. Or if you say, I'm going to give a hundred rand, and you don't have a hundred rand. Paul is saying, that's not, I'm not wanting you to give more than you're able to give. But if there is a desire, if there's a readiness, then you, it's assumed you have the resources to, to do it. This is an important principle. If you, if you uh, don't have a lot of money uh, and you only have a few rands able that you're able to give, you have to meet all your expenses, all of these things, and that's all you're able to give, that's fine. There isn't a percentage given here. Remember, many of the, the believers in the Corinthian church were slaves. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us about the, the wretched situation. There were rich, wealthy Corinthians. They would come to church. Uh, they would get there and in communion, they would drink so much wine, they'd get drunk. And Paul says, no, no, no. You need to wait. You need to tarry one for another. Understanding is that the slaves, because they didn't get a day off, could only come to church later when they had finished their work. And Paul is saying to the other Corinthians, wait for them, and then you have communion together. Don't start eating the bread and drinking the wine and drinking and drinking and drinking. Wait for them to come. Slaves had to save up money to buy their freedom. See, any money that they gave, they knew would delay their, their freedom. And yet many did that. Paul is, is saying, look, it's not about comparing between one another. Oh, that person gives X amount. You know, I could never give that amount. That's fine. That's not the issue. It's just to be generous with what you're able to give. Not to destroy yourself. I do not believe the account in the Gospels about the woman who gave all her money is given uh, to, to, as a wonderful example of her faithfulness. I believe that story is told to show how corrupt that system was that would actually take all the money from a widow. That's not Christianity. Verse 13, Paul says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not trying to put all the burden on you for the Jerusalem church. I want there to be fairness. And the key word here is need. Now, Paul isn't talking about a sort of socialist fairness or equality that, that we're all exactly the same. We all have exactly the same needs, because that's just not true. Uh, we are not all exactly the same. Human beings are not the same. They are different. They have different needs. You even see this in verse 15. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. That's talking about, uh, in Exodus, the gathering of, of manna. 
God provided food. Some of them gathered much. It doesn't say they all gathered the same amount because people are different. Different appetites, different metabolisms, different activities, different ages, different family size. The issue is need. What is the need? I think maybe a helpful way to look at it is there might be within our church the Bible is very clear there should be no member of Heritage Baptist who has needs that are are not being met financially there should be no member of Heritage Baptist church who is not being lazy who is good testimony who is going without food or shelter it should never happen God forbid that that ever happens and Again, praise God for our deacons who, who make sure that that does not happen. That's the idea. It's not saying, well, we should all live in the same size houses. We should all have exactly the same possessions. That's not the, the teaching in Scripture. But our needs should be met in this area. And so it is with, on a, that you could say that's a microscopic level. On a macroscopic level, it's the same with churches. There should be churches in our, in, in our spheres, church plants that we're a part of, whatever. There should never be a need in that church that is not met if we're able. I'm talking about all things being equal. I'm not talking about if you know, the world economy crashes and there's just, we're all starving to death, then, then that's a different thing. But ordinarily, there are wealthier churches that should help other churches in their need. And tables can turn, things can change. That's what Paul says. And this church that was once needed help might end up being the church that helps this church. Because that's what happened with the Jerusalem church. It was the great church. Sent out the apostles. It had it all. Provided the apostles. Paul says in Romans, you received all the teaching. You received the gospel from this church. You were blessed. You had a need. The Jerusalem church gave, brought the gospel. They were the evangelists, the missionaries who brought the gospel. Paul says, you owe them. You owe them financially because of what they gave to you. And so things can change. Our vision when we planted heritage was that we would be a church in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, which is a, uh, not unreached, but not well-reached or reached with... with the, the best gospel, the true gospel. But we wanted to be a church that could uh, grow, be large, be prosperous in every way, financially and spiritually, so that we can provide for other churches, plant other churches in more difficult areas, in rural areas, in poorer areas, and support those churches. Send out missionaries. Because all of these things require money. The Lord Jesus said that to the missionaries just before his crucifixion and ascension. He says, look, you need to take purses now. You need to have money. And so, uh, to those of you who are students, if you get good jobs and you stay in Johannesburg, keep that in your head, in your heart. Why has God blessed you? Why has God given you that place? That income. 
better than 90% of the population. Just because he really likes you and wants you to have a fantastic life? No. So you can bless others so that we can grow the church and plant other churches, train more men for ministry, send out more church planters, look after other churches that have needs. And we have sought to do that as God has blessed us in the last year or so and other churches have really battled We have been able to help. But we want to be even more generous. Verse 16, won't read it. Verse 16, 17, 18, 19, and then uh, later on in, in 22 as well. Paul now says, look, for this collection, these are the people who are going to come and and get the money. He talks about Titus and he talks about another brother who's well known for preaching the gospel. And then later on in verse 22, another brother who is tested and earnest in these matters. He says, I'm going to come. These other brothers are going to come. We're going to collect the money and take it to Jerusalem. Now, why is Paul so concerned about this? Why does he give so much airtime to this? Verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that has been administered by us. Remember the false apostles were accusing Paul of all sorts of things. It seems they were probably accusing him of stealing as well. So Paul says, hey, it's not, I'm not going to come and get that money by myself. There's all these other brothers, faithful brothers, well-known brothers We are going to come and collect this money. We are going to administer this gift. Why? Verse 21, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Money is one of the most destructive things to relationships and to churches and to reputations. And you go through the Old and New Testament over and over again. False teachers, false prophets, false apostles are guilty of fraud and corruption. How many people reject the church because they see the fraud and corruption in in the church? They see people who preach every Sunday exposed as thieves and liars. And so we need to be so careful with how we deal with finances as a church. That's what Paul is saying here. There's a plurality. There are checks and balances. And so we seek to do that as well. Counting the, the money that is given. Not one person by himself. A bank account. Not one person can just authorize a payment. It has to be loaded by one person, authorized by another. We do as much as possible to make sure that there is no opportunity for, for corruption. I tell my students at seminary, because this is so important. It is so easy to fall into misuse of money. Many of them uh, started their own churches. They have no training. They're trying to get training now, trying to improve themselves. The bank account is in their name. They, They count the money, all of those things. 
You might think, oh, I'll, I'll never be tempted to do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too holy for that. I'm too godly for that. No, it happens so easily, doesn't it? Suddenly your, your money is gone and you've got extra expenses. You think what I'll do is I'll just take it from the church this, this month and I'll pay it back next month. Simple thing. I, I just need to pay school fees. Or I need a new tire for my car or something. I'll just take money this week. Nobody will know. And then when I get paid, I'll, I'll put it back. And then something else happens. Isn't that right? And something else. And before you know it, you've, you've stolen. And so for, for, for the deacons and those, uh, the pastors and those who want to go into ministry, this is critical. This will destroy your ministry if you don't get this right. And Paul understood that. He says we want to do what is honorable in the Lord's sight and what is honorable in the sight of men. Even, even godly men, not even worthy to tie their shoelaces, are being exposed for, for lying about the number of hours that they work and the number of hours they work here and work there and nepotism in, in financial things. And it scars and marks their ministry. And so again, that heritage would be a place where we are careful with these things. And I'm so grateful that we are, but to, to do it even better. And as we send out people, that you would understand this. Paul is concerned what the world thinks of the church. Isn't that amazing? So many Christians are here, they don't care what the world thinks. Paul is concerned the way we, the way we operate, that we're not a bunch of Clowns falling on the floor and barking like dogs and chaos and confusion and then people you know, blame the Holy Spirit for that. Paul says, no, everything done decently and in order. We're a witness. The way we handle finances, it's a witness to the world. The way we conduct ourselves, it's a witness to the world because we're representing Christ. Verse 22, it says, we're going to send the brother who we have often tested. It's the same word, used in 1 Timothy 3 about deacons, which, which Pastor Lela looked at, tested. Not to just give money to anyone, but those who are tested. And let me just say this. I've heard this from even when I was at seminary. You know, there's some pastors that say, I have nothing to do with the finances. Well, that wasn't Paul's model. I think that's totally ungodly. The finances of a church are an incredible barometer for the spiritual health of a church. I'm very familiar with the statement of our church. I even know who gives and how much they give. Because I see that's a sign of how they're walking with the Lord. Because that's what Paul is saying here. You see, if you're devoted to Christ, you'll become like him, you'll be generous like him. Some of you could give a lot more and you're not. Or maybe you gave a lot once long ago and it just stays in your head. I'm actually a generous person because 10 years ago I gave a lot of money. <laughs> it isn't godly or spiritual for pastors not to know the financial situation of the church and what's going on. It's part of being an overseer, a manager. It's about discipleship.
The last verse I want us to look at is verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. This, this last phrase just struck me during this week, and I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, I know that in, at Heritage there are quite a few Apple nerds. Uh, you stay up late to watch the new unveiling of the new iPad and new you know, MacBook and everything like that, and even chatting to each other on WhatsApp groups about you know, how cool this MacBook is or anything like that. Uh, but I remember the days when Steve Jobs was still alive, and uh, he had a way of doing things that he would, at these unveilings, these events, he would come and talk, and uh, he would talk about software updates and what they're doing to, to their emails and what they're doing to notes and whatever it is and, and new things, and pretty boring sort of stuff. And then he would say, okay, thank you so much, and he would start to walk off the stage, and then he would say, oh yeah, and one other thing. And then he would just pull out a brand new iPod or something that they've just invented. And that's really why everyone was there. But he, he put it almost as a throwaway at the end. But it was the focus. And to me, this has been the focus. Notice what Paul says here. He says, Titus and these other brothers, these men are the glory of Christ. You see, faithful, trustworthy, tested, gospel-centered men are the glory of Christ. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is making visible what is invisible to us. It's a visible display of the invisible God, the glory of Christ. You see, we are, we are image bearers of God, aren't we? We are to reflect the glory of God. We are supposed to, Adam and Eve were supposed to show the world what God is like. To show creation and we have the same role. I always battle with Romans 3, 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Fallen short of the glory of God. Not being the mirrors we were supposed to be. That's what our sin has done. But when here he's talking to these faithful men, and of course the application to, to the whole church. Paul tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, the whole church, he says, act like men. In what way? Be courageous, be gentle, be kind, the fruit of the Spirit, be faithful, be trustworthy, be gospel-centered. See, if we are a church full of men and women and leaders who behave like this. That's the glory of Christ. You want to know what that looks like? We'll go and study the gospel, see what was Christ like. How did he behave? How kind was he? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He humbled himself, went about doing good and healing the sick, not contentious, not deceitful, not manipulative, Generous, kind, thoughtful, gracious. And so, may God help us to be a church full of men and women like that. You are the glory of Christ. And that we are a church that helps other churches. That we are a generous church. Amen. Let's, let's pray.
Oh, Father, that is our, our heart's cry, our heart's desire, that we would be a faithful, generous church. A church that shows the glory of Christ. That shows the world what Jesus Christ is really like. There are so many misconceptions, so many uh, blasphemous views of what Christ is like. Just a great guy, just a nice guy, a revolutionary, a great teacher, a prophet, a heretic, someone to mock and tease. And a lot of that is because of the church, the way the church has acted, the way false teachers have acted in the name of Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to be what you want us to be, Lord Jesus, that we would be those clean mirrors that reflect faithfully. And one of the primary ways that we show it is through our generosity. Our generosity to one another, that's what true fellowship is. Thank you so much for, for what is already evident. People sacrificing time and resources and food and clothing for others. Praise you for that. That is because of your grace. But we want to excel in this. We pray that you would provide for us and provide opportunity for us to help other churches, to do good to others. We pray for our church plant in Potchefstroom. We pray for our, our plans to plant in Alex and elsewhere and send out missionaries. And uh, Please help us to be a generous people, even in um, finding a larger location. All of these things that the gospel would go forth and that the generosity of your people would be evidence that you're at work in their, in their hearts. So we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.